Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On our program today, vaccine fraud. There are certainly been examples of attempts to um, you know, sell fraudulent products. We believe uh, that they are somewhat of a security concern, uh, given that we are aware of what is coming into the country from the manufacturers themselves. As the federal government announces a surge of new vaccines arriving in the country, are criminal elements trying to sell phony vaccines to the federal government? And how are they handling this? The procurement minister, Anita Anand, joins us with details on that. And then, beating the vaccine targets as more vaccines flood in, is the federal government ready to help the provinces cope? Major General Denny Fultin, who's in charge of the vaccine rollout, joins us with the latest. And then, drugs and guns? No one should ever have to be afraid. No more tragedies. No more wrong place, wrong time. The right place to act is here, and the right time is now. It may not be the, uh, the silver bullet uh, that we need to, uh, to end uh, gun crime, but it's a step in the right direction and we sh it should be supported. Will the new stricter gun control laws and getting rid of mandatory minimum sentences for drug crimes keep Canadians safer and help combat racism in the justice system? The Justice Minister David Lametti joins us on the changes he's making to Canada's crime laws. And then the Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart weighs in on whether his city will actually move to ban handguns. Plus, Olympic boycott. Canada's Conservatives are calling on the Parliament of Canada to recognize that genocide is currently being carried out by the People's Republic of China against Uyghur, Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslims. The opposition says China is committing a genocide and they want Canada to boycott or relocate the Beijing 2022 Olympics. But are economic sanctions against China also on the table? And why doesn't the federal government agree? MPs are here to debate that. Plus, with new variants coming, are provinces opening up too soon? We'll debate that on the Scrum. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Canada is still way down on the world COVID vaccine list. We're about 52nd. And the opposition is saying the government will not even hit its vaccine targets of all Canadians getting the vaccine by the end of September. But the federal government is pushing back, saying, sorry, things are actually about to accelerate. 14.5 million Canadians will be vaccinated, they say, by the end of June. And that's just with Pfizer and Moderna. But if three other vaccine candidates are actually approved by Health Canada, that could move to 24.5 million Canadians. Can these targets really be met, these new targets? And are there attempts by criminals to disrupt Canada's vaccine supply or rip off the government with phony vaccines? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Minister of Procurement, Anita Nan. Minister, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Let, let's start with timelines. Obviously, every Canadian wants these accelerated. We, we found out last week that the government's target is now 14.5 million people by the end of June. But if other vaccine candidates are approved, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, Novavax, 24.5 million Canadians. How close are these other vaccine candidates to approval? 
Well, thanks so much, Evan, for having me on again. I just wanted to reiterate the first point that you made, which is that we did have a temporary disruption in the supply chain, but a in February, we've received or will be receiving three times the number of doses in the second part of the month than the first part of the month. March will triple the number of February doses uh, with a total of 3.5 million doses being received. And in Q2, we will receive four times the number of doses that we received in Q1. So all in all, with approved suppliers alone, Pfizer and Moderna, uh, we are on track as we have continued to say that we are. How quickly after approval of AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, Novavax, will the product arrive? Will you be able to say, okay, the approval here, 48 hours later, like Pfizer, it arrives in Canada and we can start distributing that will accelerate it. What's the lag between approval and arrival? That is exactly the conversation that I am having with each of these suppliers right now. I am seeking to ensure that we have a very close timeline between approval and delivery of the vaccines. Uh, in our contracts, we contemplate quarterly delivery schedules, as I've already mentioned to you. And then we work towards uh, weekly delivery schedules that the vaccine suppliers will provide once they have approval from the regulatory body. Okay. Are any of these vaccines, let's say AstraZeneca, are any of them actually already here in Canada? To my knowledge, no, uh, but we have had a number of intermediaries or suppliers offering uh, to sell us doses of AstraZeneca and other vaccines, uh, which we are somewhat surprised at given that we have full knowledge based on our very close relationship with these suppliers as to what is coming into the country and when from a border perspective. Sorry, this is interesting. You're saying that your ministry has been offered what? Uh, uh, supplies of AstraZeneca, Pfizer, Moderna, these vaccines, but not from the companies. These are what? Private companies that are offering to what? Sell to the government or distribute this? Private companies, individuals, suppliers, I refer to them all as intermediaries seeking to supply vaccines uh, to the Government of Canada on a rush basis. Uh, we have received a number of these offers. We have referred them to the RCMP. We believe uh, that they are somewhat of a security concern uh, given that we are aware of what is coming into the country from the manufacturers themselves. Okay, I just want to probe this a bit. So you're so so you've referred company request to the RCMP to investigate why because these could be scams that they're trying to either rip off the government by selling you product that may not be the actual vaccine in other words you don't think they have these vaccines or they're phony vaccines or they're just straight out scams trying to rip the government off how, how often has this happened well, I'll take you back to our days of procuring PPE, where we did procure 2.7 billion items of PPE for Canadians. At the same time that those procurements were occurring, we did receive a number of uh, bogus offers for N95s, people claiming to have large quantities of N95s, trying to selling, sell those to us at very high prices. And uh, those were later found to be illegitimate offers 
and we are experienced in this business. We know that uh, what is coming into the country from vaccines perspective, and uh, we know that there are a number of concerning intermediaries out there offering to sell, and we're concerned for other jurisdictions, municipalities, provinces, that they may uh, experience similar offers, and that's why we've referred that to the RCMP. So the RCMP is in, in investigating this. Can you name any of these intermediaries, any of these companies that are trying to rip the government off, or you're concerned that they are? They're under investigation now, so I will leave that to the RCMP in the investigative process. Uh, but that's to say that we are guarding our vaccine supply chain very carefully. I liken myself to a mother bear guarding her cubs, and we really yeah. need to make sure that the vaccine supply chain is protected for Canadians' health and safety. All right, I got to leave it there. Uh, Minister Nando, always good to have you on the program. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Evan. Take care. All right, so interesting news there on the security issues and on the accelerated timeline. But will the provinces be ready to distribute the deluge of vaccines or should the federal government offer help? And with news that the Pfizer vaccine does not need super cold storage freezers, will the distribution of that vaccine now go a lot faster? Let's find out. Joining me now is Major General Danny Fultan, the Public Health Agency Vice President of Logistics and Operation. He oversees the federal vaccine rollout. Thanks for your service to the country, Major General. Always good to see you. We are getting a big deluge of vaccines the federal government's spoken about. Um, are the provinces prepared to handle this big uptick in your view? Uh, very much so. Uh, it's been the focus for several weeks now. Uh, as, uh, as uh, you know, 400 plus thousands a week uh, are arriving uh, starting this week of uh, the Pfizer product, more Moderna coming. In the coming weeks, uh, as you now know, in the, uh, in the April to June timeframe, we expect 23 million uh, doses. So uh, we need to scale up. And we've been very much focusing on, the, on establishing a, a robust uh, distribution system across the country. And provinces are now looking with confidence at increased numbers. There's data now that, that one shot of the Pfizer or Moderna actually does really well. Like you don't necessarily need the second shot at 21 or 28 or even 42 days. Uh, will you encourage provinces not to hold back that second dose, go with a single dose now earlier to inoculate as many people as possible before these variants take hold? Um, there was a time not long ago when we encouraged provinces and territories to hold on to the second dose not knowing what uh, the flow of vaccines would be. Uh, we got through a period of time where we had some uh, certainty about the vaccines and uh, provinces were in a better position to determine right. whether or not they should hold on to the second dose, immunize as rapidly as possible. And I think uh, coming out of this, this period of uh, very limited supplies, we now have predictability that provinces and territories need and they can now make those, uh, those judgments uh, they are responsible, provinces, territories, for their immunization plan. So it's really up to them to make those decisions. Let's say AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, uh, come online, uh, or Novavax. H how will it be determined what province gets which vaccine? You know, some people may say, I, we, we'd prefer the Pfizer. It's more effective against this variant. Uh, will there be yeah. provincial involvement in terms of distribution of who gets what when? I think right now it would be premature to speculate too much as to who wants what, but those discussions are alive. And, uh, and what I have instructed my team to do is to plan 
uh, distribution across all the provinces, uh, some to the territories as we'll look to immunize more people in territories in April onwards, uh, but really assume that all provinces want AstraZeneca, all provinces want Novavax, all provinces, you know, name it. And then um, there will be advisory bodies, there'll be uh, table, various tables where the specialists, the people that actually know about vaccines, will have those right. discussions, the different uh, variables would be uh, presented, and those uh, decisions, uh, provinces may decide to opt in or opt out, um, or m uh, may decide to uh, orient that uh, specific product to a specific group or uh, location for a number of reasons. Major General, there's some security concerns, uh, and we spoke to Minister Anita Nand about this, that some companies, some entities, private companies are trying to acquire and distribute vaccines, sell them to the government. Anita Nand mm -hmm. saying she's actually gone to the RCMP to report this. Are there, are you seeing this? Are there real security concerns about uh, fraudulent vaccines being used or other security issues relating to the rollout of the vaccines? Well, we and uh, colleagues in the law enforcement or colleagues in, in uh, public, uh, public safety are monitoring. Um, there are certainly been examples of attempts to um, you know, sell fraudulent products or at least uh, just like what you would expect with other products, uh, attempts by different uh, entities to try and convince us to, uh, at different levels to, that, that they have access to quantities and that they can uh, provide in the millions different types of vaccines. There's also a risk of counterfeit uh, misinformation, disinformation, all things that law enforcement and other security agencies are keeping a close eye on. Uh, so we're informed of some of this. Uh, if it comes to, uh, to our, if, it, uh, uh, if, we, if we are made aware of this, uh, as we encourage provinces and territories, we ensure that law enforcement and security agencies are tracking and and take the appropriate actions. Well, we, we hope that's a good problem to have. We all want something. Uh, Major General, always good to have you on the program. I appreciate it, sir. Thanks. Thank you very much, Ian. Coming up, boycotting the China Olympics of 2022, trade sanctions against China, all those are on the table, as the opposition pushes the federal government to confirm that China is committing a genocide. What else is at stake? MPs are here to debate that next. Stay right here with Question Period. We know that China is committing these four element, elements of genocide, forcibly transferring children, imposing measures intended to prevent births, deliberately inflicting conditions of life calculated for its physical destruction, causing serious bodily harm. It's a word that is extremely loaded and uh, is certainly something uh, that we should be looking at uh, in the case of the Uyghurs. It's about a lot more than just boycotting the Beijing 2022 Olympics, though that is the shiny object attracting attention. The opposition believes that China is committing a genocide against the Muslim minority Uyghur population in Western China. So do some liberal MPs like Wayne Easter and Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. And so does the former liberal justice minister, Erwin Kotler, who told me that he, like everyone else, is demanding not only an Olympic relocation or boycott, but possibly economic sanctions against China as well. But the federal government is being cautious, saying they're studying the situation. Now, tomorrow there is a vote on this. Why are the Liberals waiting so long to make a call? And since China is Canada's second largest trading partner, should it be setting uh, economic sanctions on China as well? Let's bring in MPs 
to dig into this. Rob Oliphant is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Michael Chong is the Conservative Foreign Affairs Critic, and Jack Harris is the NDP Foreign Affairs Critic. Gents, thanks for joining us. I'll start with you, Mr. Oliphant. The evidence for the opposition and for many people is overwhelming. Forced sterilization, millions interned in camps, rapes. Again, Erwin uh, Kotler, the former Liberal Justice Minister, said that China is committing a genocide according to the Convention Against Genocide. It meets the threshold. Will your government support the Conservative motion tomorrow to confirm that China is indeed committing a genocide? I think that uh, we will see what happens tomorrow. But in the meantime, uh, let, let me be very clear that the, uh, the atrocities that are happening in Xinjiang province are horrendous. Uh, there is much testimony. There is evidence that we are, are uh, looking at all the time, much of it coming from civil society because it's hard to get from, uh, from Chinese officials. But what's going on? We are looking at it very closely. That's why Canada and the UK imposed some very severe uh, sanctions already, measures, economic measures, this past January about uh, companies doing business in Xinjiang. We are watching it closely. We're also doing it with, with our partners around the world. Uh, we believe that genocide is an extremely strong statement. And so we will, we will take care and caution with that. We're not an opposition party. We're the government. And we will continue to find a way to make sure that we right. do this courageously, but also carefully. Um, Mr. Chong, I'd like you to respond to that because it is a conservative motion. It is. You're also asking to have an Olympic boycott or, or relocation. Um, I want you to tell me what you think of the, the government's position, but also is your party ready not just to talk about the Olympics, but to say if there's a genocide taking place, stop trading oil, stop trading agricultural goods with China. Are you prepared to go that far? Yes, we are, Evan. Uh, we think everything needs to be on the table. Uh, trade, uh, Magnitsky sanctions, economic sanctions. Uh, we believe that uh, we're calling on the government to relocate, to seek the relocation of the next winter's Olympics. Um, this should be all part of a big reset of the Canada-China relationship. A new framework is needed uh, to bring forward uh, that new reset, uh, and everything needs to be on the table. Look, there's evidence of up to half a million people being forced through a state-run coercive system to pick cotton in Xinjiang, where the genocide is taking place. Uh, there is evidence of other forced labor taking place, mass sterilizations. And so we should start by putting a blanket ban on the import of products like tomatoes and uh, cotton from that region of China. Um, those are the kinds of things we need to do to back up the recognition of this genocide. Jack Harris, uh, again, how will your party vote uh, in tomorrow's vote on this? And what's your view outside of relocating the Olympics? What other measures do you think immediately need to be taken place as your party believes the genocide's taken place? Well, I think the first thing, I think, and the important thing, really, and this is why we support the motion, is, is naming it for what it is. And we're dealing with the, the mass surveillance, we're dealing with forced labor, we're dealing with population control, we're dealing with uh, political indoctrination on a, a, a large level, arbitrary detention, uh, you know, forced labor, all of that has to be named for what it is. This can't go on with impunity, and we don't want to see other nations taking the lead of China in doing this. So we have to name it on the international stage 
for what it is. There, yes, there has to be an investigation and the UN idea that has been proposed. Obviously, that's that has to happen. And China, if they claim that this is not happening, should welcome that uh, if, because if they think the facts don't bear it out. But we cannot stand by idly and say this is what's going on. Mr. Oliphant, your government says you're studying it. We have no idea how long that's going to take. In the meantime, the criticism has been you've just been soft on China. You haven't made a decision on the Huawei, uh, whether they should be part of 5G. Huawei's part of investing with uh, sensitive technologies with universities. Canada's invested in the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank that opposition parties want out. So are, will any action be taken place on this? And, and when will your government make a determination as to if and when there is a genocide going on? I think, Evan, you've, you've listed a whole shopping list of issues. China is a complex, difficult situation. I take exception to the opposition critics as though we were sitting around. We have raised the issues about Xinjiang and Hong Kong and Tibet numerous times at the UN, at the UN Human Rights uh, Council, at the UN General Assembly. In the periodic review, the universal periodic review that was done two years ago in China, we've raised the issues of human rights. We are not, there's no competition for leadership. We don't need to be the only leader in this. We need to work in concert with countries around the world, with like-minded countries to be effective. We don't believe in, in mass um, uh, responses that are untargeted. We know that sanctions like that have hurt the wrong people at the wrong times. And I don't believe the Conservative Party has ever said that before. We know that targeted, targeted absolute sanctions and measures, doing them in concert with other countries, doing them multilaterally is the way to work. This is not about scoring political points. This is about helping Uyghur people. Well, okay, Mr. Chang, you can respond. He's essentially alleging that this is grandstanding yeah. going on. And what's your response to that? Th that's simply not true. In order to trigger the protection of some 12 million Uyghurs in China, we need to recognize this as a genocide. The 1948 Genocide Convention is clear that states have an obligation to prevent genocide and to punish perpetrators of genocide. But if you're not willing to call it for what it is, a genocide, then you're not obligated to do either one of those things. And so not recognizing this as genocide is simply not an option. We as a world committed after the Second World War to never again allow the horrors of a genocide like the Holocaust to take place. Canada has an obligation in the best of our tradition to uphold international human rights and dignity and to take a position on this as a genocide in order to call the world to action to take measures such as relocating the Olympics to prevent the continuation but, of this genocide. Jets, I got to leave it there. It's going to be a very interesting vote on this tomorrow. I always appreciate your time. Rob Oliphant, Michael Chong, Jack Harris, thanks so much. Coming up on our program, ending mandatory minimums, new legislation from the federal government. Will this actually reduce the number of Indigenous and Black Canadians in the federal prison system? That's the goal. Will it work? The Justice Minister David Lametti joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. Our criminal justice system has strong elements of systemic and structural racism. And that perhaps is the greatest challenge facing us as Canadians to, to create a more fair and, and diverse supportive society. 
confronting systemic racism in Canada's justice system. The federal government has now tabled legislation it says will fight the overrepresentation of black and indigenous peoples in the criminal justice system. It centers around three key reforms, repealing mandatory minimum penalties for all drug offenses and some firearm offenses, more opportunities for conditional sentences if an offender is not a threat to public safety, this could be a counseling or a curfew session, and requiring prosecutors and police to consider diverting simple possession of drugs to treatment programs instead of laying charges. Now, mandatory minimums were, of course, the cornerstone of much of Stephen Harper's justice reforms, and the Liberals have long planned to roll them back. After all, according to Stats Canada, Indigenous people make up 29% of prisoners in federal custody, but 4% of Canada's population. And black offenders, 7.5% of federal offenders, but only 3.5% of the population. Will this legislation actually change that? And why on the week of new gun legislation was this tabled? Would mandatory minimum sentences on some gun crimes be uh, removed? Is that a mixed message? Let's find out. Joining us now is the Justice Minister, David Lametti. Good to have you back on the program, sir. Let's just talk about this. The Liberals have talked about this for five and a half years. Uh, why will getting rid of mandatory minimum sentences for drug offenses and some uh, um, weapons offenses have the effect of reducing the number of black and indigenous peoples in Canada's prisons? Well, thanks, Evan, for that question. It's an important one. We've, we've targeted uh, minimum mandatory penalties that that do statistically uh, result in more indigenous peoples and more black peoples, other racialized communities uh, being incarcerated. So we've actually targeted specific offenses and groupings of offenses that seem to have touched uh, the indigenous and black communities in particular. Okay. Um, now, you tabled legislation the same week your government is cracking down on gun ownership and and you're getting rid of mandatory minimums, you say for, for all drug offenses, but also for trafficking weapons, robbery with a firearm, being caught with an illegal firearm. Is it a mixed message to, to get rid of a mandatory minimum on some of those at the same time that you're trying to crack down on, on people using illegal firearms? Uh, no, not at all, Evan. In fact, I worked closely with Minister Blair to make sure that the two, the two policies did dovetail nicely. Minister Blair, in, in the, the uh, the gun legislation is attacking uh, trafficking, he's attacking organized crime, uh, he's attacking prohibited weapons and actually none of the minimum mandatory penalties that we are proposing to remove touch any of those things. So they don't touch organized crime, any, any, any uh, gun crime that has organized crime involved, that we haven't touched that. We haven't touched prohibited uh, weapons uh, and we haven't touched trafficking. So, and in fact, Minister Blair has increased the maximum on a number of those penalties because, because when it's serious, we've, we've said from the beginning that serious crime has to be punished seriously. It's, it's, but it's, we're not compromising community safety. You also restored access to conditional sentence orders, which is for sentences that are about two years and under, expanding the availability of conditional sentences. Uh, why is that so important? That's critically important because it allows a judge uh, in principle to fashion uh, a sentence based on the person in front of them. Uh, it means we can keep people in their communities if, if they're working, if they have kids, uh, if they have a problem such as uh, a problematic addiction, we can actually get help for them uh, without taking them away from their families, without taking them away from their community support, their job or their kids. If we put them in jail, it takes takes them away from all of that. We have to, in many cases, take care of their children. It costs us a lot of money to incarcerate, and we don't get very good results. Okay, but I did speak 
to Sandy Hudson, who's the co-founder of Black Lives Matter Canada, and she said that, first of all, there's too much discretion in the system for the diversion and, and other issues. Her concern is if there's already institutionalized racism in the justice system, as you admit, giving judges or police or prosecutors discretion to decide what penalties will probably be used will perpetuate the institutionalized racism in the system. It, it may not fix it. Well, look, education is an important part of this. Uh, making diversion the default mechanism, whether it's for prosecutors, whether it's for police, uh, obviously puts additional responsibilities on those groups of people. But we have, a, we have an obligation to work with them. I know police forces want to take this on. They want to do better. It's not about, look, it, we've said this often, it's not about blaming individuals for being racist. It's about removing the structures that, that perpetuate this kind of systemic racism. And, and we think that, that having a, a greater uh, amount of diversion in the system, creating a, a default for right. diversion within the system, will actually help keep people out of a system that then perpetuates further uh, racist tendencies. So we're I mean, working at it. We think it's an important first step. Yeah, her concern is that it's just gonna keep perpetuating it because the, the, the racism is already there. But I, I want to talk about another issue because one of the aspects of this is is dealing with uh, drug the drug crisis uh, less as a criminal crisis as a health crisis, um, and, and the war on drugs quote has, has largely been a failure. Now we have the mayor of Vancouver joining us on our program later. Uh, in a different aspect, he's asked you to decriminalize simple possession of illicit drugs. Uh, he believes that this will save money and it will treat uh, the opioid and other crises more as a health crisis. Are you considering this? Well, I'm going to work with my colleagues, <clears throat> excuse me, around the table. I'm going to work with my counterparts in British Columbia. Uh, and in particular, the lead on this is, is Minister Haidu, because it, it would be under her powers as Minister of Health uh, in this particular circumstance, at least in the first instance. Uh, I'll participate in that discussion. Uh, I'm, open, uh, I'm open to it. I believe in health responses uh, to health crises, and I do believe uh, that this is a crisis. All right, I got to leave it there. I appreciate your time as always, Minister. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, new gun control legislation. Will municipalities actually put a ban on handguns? Is that the federal government's job? When we come back, the scrum weighs in with our special guest, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. Stay right here with Question Period. We recognize that there are many municipalities uh, who have expressed a desire to move forward with further restrictions, including uh, banning uh, the possession, transportation, or use of uh, firearms, particularly handguns, uh, within their city limits. Well, the gun control debate is back again in Canada. More than 1,500 weapons have been prohibited. The federal government has announced a gun buyback program. It's not mandatory. No one knows how much it's going to cost. The federal government's new legislation allows municipalities to ban handguns, and they'll be supported by federal law. But if they are against handguns, the federal government, why don't they just have a national ban, as some municipalities want? So to talk about all that and lots more, the scrum is here. Today we're joined by Glenn McGregor, CTV News Senior Political Correspondent. Stephanie Levitz is a reporter with the Canadian Press in Ottawa. And our special guest this round is the Vancouver Mayor and former MP, Kennedy Stewart. Uh, good morning, everyone. Great to have you here. Uh, let's start with the gun legislation that uh, Bill Blair introduced last week, uh, Mayor Stewart. Um, 
do you support, um, and I know you do, leaving the, uh, a handgun ban up to municipalities, or would you have rather had that the federal government make a blanket um, ban on handguns, and will Vancouver ban the handgun? Yeah, so I, uh, you know, I'll take what I can get at this point. And so, if there's an opportunity to get uh, more guns off our streets, and we've had a 75% increase in homicides this year, I know uh, this enthusiasm is shared by uh, the mayor of the second largest municipality, Surrey, uh, Doug McCallum. So, uh, you know, if we're empowered to, to put a bylaw in place, I've already informed my council that I'll be bringing that forward. I'm, I'm sure I'll get the support to move ahead with this. Uh, Glenn, what do you make of this? There's, there's not only that, but they've rendered all these guns prohibited now, all these firearms, but the buyback's not mandatory. They, they right. just said, you know, you, you know, at some point you can, they're useless, so you might as well just use the buyback program. What do you make of that? Yeah, these measures announced this week are designed to incentivize gun owners to participate in the buyback, but unless there's a requirement to do that, many of them won't. And those firearms that they have now deemed to be assault rifles, military in nature, although there's a lot of debate about whether they really are, are still going to be in the community. It just just means you can't use them legally. Of course, that is not probably going to prevent somebody from creating mayhem with a firearm if they're intent on doing so. Remember at Dawson College in 2006, it was with a registered legal rifle that was legally owned by someone who went and killed a young woman at that place. Whether or not it's le he was using it legally is immaterial. He couldn't take it to a gun range. Uh, it could now not take it to a gun range, for example, but that's not going to stop uh, crime. Uh, kind of in the same way that you wonder about the, the handgun ban, what kind of effect is that really going to have on the ground when you can have a handgun banned in one community and then right over the the, the county line, as it were, uh, right. in, the, in the next community, uh, it's not, it, it wouldn't be illegal. So it, it practically, you kind of wonder about how effective this is really going to be at stopping gun violence. Certainly it's signaling they want to do it, but they're not really following through. Well, Mayor, can you weigh in on that? Because the opposition federally yeah. say, look, this does little to combat the real problem, which is gun smuggling, just like Glenn talked about. You know, people, guns are not, they're, they're illegal. They're coming in. The government has given some funds to the RCMP, some funds to the Canadian Border Services, not a lot, mind you. Is there enough there to stop the, what many perceive as the, the fundamental issue here? Yeah, I mean, you might think this is weird, but I know a lot about guns. Uh, my grandfather was a gunsmith. I actually have a restricted and unrestricted uh, license myself. So uh, I think everybody would agree uh, that these weapons have no place in cities. Uh, you know, my brother's a forester, so you might need a handgun, for example, out in the woods where you're being chased by a bear. But really, if you've shot a handgun, you know, there's, there's, there's no reason to have it at all other than to shoot another person. So uh, I, I think whatever steps we can take board are great and I think in the ways this is going to be a bunch of small bites before we get to where we eventually want to be which is all assault weapons and handguns banned in in the country except for uh, those folks who need them for their work all right there's more on the justice file and Steph let me just go go to you on this uh, Mr. Lametti the justice minister was on the program talked about rolling back mandatory minimum sentences which had been a cornerstone of the Harper government he's rolling them back on all drug offenses and by the way, on some handgun or some firearms offenses as well. This took five and a half years for the Liberals to do, though they promised to do it a long time ago. What do you make of what they've accomplished here? The, the Liberals, as you pointed out, Evan, they've been making this promise for a pretty long time that, you know, part of the central feature of their own justice agenda would be to roll back and to examine what the Harper uh, government had done. That had really sit, sat around doing nothing until, of course, the Black Lives Matters protests of last year when Justin Trudeau famously took a knee at that protest. 
here in Ottawa, and that was followed up by a lot of calls saying the knee is, is the symbol. What is going to be your action? How are we going to tackle the disproportionate number um, of Indigenous and Black Canadians in, in prison? And so this was the response to that. The question always becomes, as it always does with this Liberal government, they have made this move legislatively, and one of the things they've said is they want to divert <coughs> excuse me, more options for folks who are suffering from drug addiction, who have other sort of causes at play behind some of their criminal behavior, to get them more help, to give them alternate options. And that relies on what? Government funding, more programs. And so if you're going to introduce a piece of legislation with this, there ought to be a secondary tier that comes in and says, okay, and here's the money to do the second piece, because without both of them, it's just not going to work. Uh, yeah, Glenn, Glenn, weigh in on that, and yeah. also on, on the politics of all this. Two major pieces of legislation last week, you know, the, the gun control measures and then the mandatory minimums, uh, that's also sending a political message, Glenn. Yeah, and they also seem to be kind of working against each other because, as you uh, point out, they are repealing mandatory minimums on some firearms offenses. Uh, the more serious ones, of course, wouldn't necessarily have the, the mandatory minimums apply. They would be uh, penalized as a judge sees fit. A lot of these things were falling anyway. The courts were knocking them down one by one, these mandatory minimums, uh, on basis of their constitutionality or unconstitutionality. So it was, it was, a lot of them were going to fall uh, uh, eventually, and it was going to cost the government a lot of money to go to take these cases to the Supreme Court and to uh, argue to keep the mandatory minimums in place when they didn't really believe in it anyway. But I think Steph's right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you're, you're, you're dealing with a fairly small aspect of this, and they're not going the further step of dealing with, dare I say, committing sociology, the root causes of these problems. Uh, why are, are so many uh, racialized and Indigenous people falling into these situations where they're facing mandatory minimums uh, in, the, in the first place? They haven't really dealt with that. And then it doesn't go as far, of course, on the drug side of dealing with decriminalization of uh, possession right. of small amounts, which uh, would, would, would solve the issue of mandatory minimums uh, completely for those kind of crimes. Yeah, you can commit sociology on this program. And actually, <laughs> let me just pick up on what you're talking about because, Mayor Stewart, you've been on this program talking about your desire to decriminalize simple possession of of any drug as a way to fight the opioid crisis. And again, the, the minister was saying part of the, the changes to the, the, the justice and the, and the legal system here was to try to deal with drugs, not as a war on drugs, but of course as a health issue. Do you think this federal government will allow de uh, decriminalization of simple possession of any drug? Is that coming still, do you think? I think there's a theme here and it's, uh, these are big changes to society. So to, to make a national move right away uh, when folks are uncertain. Uh, so this approach of uh, using Canada, uh, you know, some populations like our here, ours here in Vancouver have a very different attitude towards drugs. So we brought in the first uh, safe consumption site back in the early 2000s. We have a long history with harm reduction. So our population is ready to try something. Uh, we're in different communities that may not be the case. So I think why not use federalism uh, in this sense to experiment with policy with uh, Communities that are that are willing to move forward, uh, and I, so I, in in some ways, uh, I think this is uh, a practical way forward, and uh, and and I think this is something Canadians should welcome. All right, I got to leave it there. Great to have you on the program, uh, Kennedy Stewart, the mayor of Vancouver. Glenn McGregor, what a pleasure to have you on the program. I know Steph is going to stick around uh, for a minute because when we come back, COVID variants could they send Canada's case count off the charts? Is now the right time for provinces to actually be lifting restrictions? The Scrum will return with special guest CTV News infectious disease specialist, Dr. Abdu Sharkawi. Stay right here with Question Period.
more contagious variants spreading, further lifting of the public health measures will cause the epidemic to resurge rapidly and strongly. A stern warning from the federal health officials this week. If provinces like Ontario and Quebec, which are gradually reopening, become too lax with public health measures, they'll become overwhelmed by a third wave. These variants of concern are spreading rapidly. They pose new risks. Is it the right thing to do to prioritize the economy over public health? Is it short-sighted or is it prudent? And what else can be done to stop a potential third wave. To talk about that and lots more, let's bring back the scrum. Steph Levitz from the Canadian Press is back. So is Joris Napier, the CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief. Our special guest this round is CTV News Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Abdushar Kawi. Uh, great to have everyone back. Doc, let me just start with you. Um, people are looking at this modeling and, and experts are saying they're, they're more worried than ever. Uh, even though people are looking at the curve looks bad, ICUs aren't as filled. How concerned are you about loosening restrictions in the in, in with the the new variants of concern out there i'm very concerned in fact i you know i think these variants of concern are named rather inappropriately they should be variants of alarm based on how rapidly they spread and how much more lethal they are you don't have to look far and see what happened in newfoundland in five days where they accumulated almost a third or greater than a third of the entire cases a caseload that they had of the whole pandemic over the last year and what happened in a nursing home in Barrie where over half of the residents died in a period of three weeks. This is an entirely different animal compared to the virus that we've been grappling with for the past year and to suggest that we can apply the same measures even if they are restrictive measures right now or worse loosen things and imagine that these variants are not going to cause serious harm to me is naive uh, joyce i mean a lot this is you know we spent a lot of time talking about federal vaccine procurement this is all issues dr sharkow was talking about that fall on the provinces what do you make of it there's a contradiction in the numbers that we are hearing on friday uh, the chief medical officer says there are 33,000 active cases in canada in fact 60 percent less than they were last month on the other hand we have these variants that are creeping up in all provinces now. They're everywhere, and yet the cases remain low, but her predictions remain very high. So I think what's happening now is there's multiple, multiple messages that people are listening or hearing, and it's difficult to tell. So who should we be listening to while provinces are reopening gradually? Right? We're told that the variants are more deadly and easily spread. So hold on a second. There's got to be one hymn book somewhere that somebody can take out and say, okay, this is how we're going to tell people. These right. are the messages we're going to tell people. Because right now, there are multiple messages and they don't all jive. Uh, Steph, weigh in on this. Uh, again, a lot of these issues, whether to reopen with this happening, will fall on the provinces who are distributing the vaccine now. What do you make of how provinces are balancing all this? It is profoundly disappointing, Evan, as it should be to any Canadian citizen, that we are coming out of yet another lockdown period wondering what exactly were the governments doing during the lockdown to prepare for after the lockdown? I sit in my house, you know, six days out of seven, working from home, looking ahead at things. 
And here we are, we're coming out of a lockdown. Are there safer measures in schools? I'm not sure. Is there paid sick leave to help folks in places where people congregate? I don't know. Are rapid tests sitting unused on the shelves? I know that. And so the question then becomes, if you're going to keep asking people to stay home, to keep each other safe, governments, what are you doing? The federal government is shoveling money out the door that the provinces, for some reason or another, are refusing to spend. And it's ridiculous. And people should really be holding their elected officials to account at all levels on this. Yeah, and, and again, Dr. Shorkawi, again, I can't stress this enough. I know on this program we talk a lot about the federal government's role and responsibility for acquiring. But what Steph and Joyce are talking about, all on the provincial side. But, sir, there's a race now between the variants and the vaccine. Uh, the government's promising more vaccines. Just from your point of view, the vaccines ain't going to win that race, right? we got to do something. The variants are winning. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Listen, the vaccines weren't going to win the race with the non-mutant strains because the vaccines take weeks for immunity to be constituted within each individual never mind multiplying that across an entire community. So the variants are definitely going to win. And unless you're helping to prevent exposure to the infection right. and identify it so that you can prevent further spread through helping with these systemic determinants, like essential worker support and paid sick leave, and providing testing in schools and congregative environments, you're not doing your job and the variants will win. The vaccines are insurance policy over the long term. They will right. not do enough for us in the short and immediate term. Just before we leave, uh, tomorrow there's going to be a vote, a conservative motion on whether or not a genocide is taking place in China. We talked about that earlier uh, with MPs. Uh, I don't know if it's gonna be a free vote for the liberals, but a lot of liberal vote, uh, MPs are gonna vote with this. What do you make of the federal government spending not make it a decision on this issue that is now gaining unanimous support among opposition. They're caught between a rock and a hard place. This is a government that did not want to deal with this issue mm. of the Uyghurs. They don't want to deal with any, really, any direct issues about China. And they're forced by the opposition, by the conservatives, to put their money on the table and say, is it a yes or is it a no? Is this a genocide or not? I am looking forward to that vote because I want to know, first, will they be free to vote their conscience? Secondly, what right. will the whips and the cabinet tell their members to just not vote for it? What will it look like? We know it's symbolic, but it's a difficult situation for the Trudeau government, and the only people to blame are the, are the government. Joe, uh, Steph, last word real quick on this. I wish it wasn't symbolic, Evan. I wish that I wasn't sitting there in the gallery the other day watching the Prime Minister not answer questions about a genocide and have to worry that in 50 years hence is another Prime Minister going to be standing up and apologizing for Canada's inactions. And if we really wanted to put meaning behind this symbolic motion on Monday, then not just the opposition parties, but also the government would follow it up with some concrete action to advocate on the part of people in China, the Uyghur Muslims who are losing their lives. Yeah, that's right. And more than maybe just a, 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 an Olympic ban. Uh, I got to leave it there. Dr. Sharkawi, Stephanie Levitz, Joyce Napier, great to have the three of you. As always on a Sunday morning, and thank all of you for joining us this week. Take good care. I know these are tough days. Be patient. There's some hope on the horizon. I'll see you tomorrow on CTV News Channel at 5 p.m. Eastern on Power Play, and we will be back here in seven short days. Take good care.